We're talking about it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. Hey, it's Hamilton Today. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. Big Ben Strong is on the board. Will Erskine booking the guest. In the newsroom, Jen McQueen. Here's Scott Thompson. Lots of history, especially when it comes to music in this city. And, uh, you know, that's one of the great things that's uh, cool about the Grey Cup Festival this year is it's going to encompass so many neat parts of Hamilton, um, not just necessarily the Grey Cup festivities. And music, obviously, a big part of that. And in the late 70s, um, uh, Daniel Lanois uh, played in a band uh, along with this gentleman and, and backing up Ray Materic and also had uh, some very cool stories in regard to this band and, and and basically what they did during that period. And coming up on November 28th at the Westdale, uh, these people are going to come back together and, and, well, I'll let them explain it. Bob Deutsch is with us, musician and producer, former owner of Hamilton's legendary Grant Avenue Studios, Lifetime Achievement Award recipient of the 2015 uh, Hamilton Music Awards at the Hamilton Music Awards. And Bob is with us now. Bob, thank you for the time. Hope you're well. No problem. Good to talk to you. This is a pretty cool period in Hamilton history, music history, and one of those neat little asides that maybe not a lot of whole people remember or maybe more do than we think. Tell, talk about, what, first of all, this group of people and, and how they all came together. Well, um, Ray Materic was signed to Asylum Records, which at the time was Warner Brothers' art label. So not pop necessarily, a little harder to market. And the other people on the label were Joni Mitchell, Bob Dylan, Eagles, and Jackson Brown, and Ray Materic. That were the, hmm. And eventually Neil Young was on the label. And during that time period for the, the two Asylum Records that we worked on, um, it was like the coolest music I had ever recorded in my life. I was so proud of all my bass parts. And um, we played um, the old roller rink, which was a beautiful dinner theater in Vancouver mm-hmm. and packed it seven days in a row. Um, we opened for um, Carlos Santana, Maple Leaf Gardens. And, you know, normally as opening act for a legend, you, you end up getting... Uh, either, you know, kind of booed after 20 minutes, but we did, <laughs> we, we did a 40-minute set, got a standing ovation, and, you know, 16,000 people, and um, as we came off stage, Santana, they kept on cheering. They, uh, Santana grabs Ray and says, they want you, buddy, go back and do another. So Encore as opening act is kind of like a very big deal. So those those two records in particular, I was just so proud of. And, you know, the funny thing is, the way it came about, I was at my brother's, and he's got a great collection of music. And during dinner, he puts on my favorite Ray record, which was Midnight Matinee. And I said to them, what I've been saying for years, I would just die to be able to play with these guys one more night. Hmm. So I have rented the theater. I've got Ray flying in from Vancouver Island, as well as the drummer who lives in the north part of the island. And uh, Dan's not going to be here because he's he's in L.A. that whole month. He can't make mm-hmm. it. Uh, Mike McCurley is going to be there. Um, and uh, we're getting a steel player for the last five songs because it's necessary, Mike Alonzo. So it, it's the, essentially it's the, the original band. And uh, we're going to do the songs from those two albums. So give us so give us uh, uh, give us a couple of examples of, of songs that people would have remembered from those albums. Well, he had Linda put the coffee on, 
Yeah. And uh, he had another, that was, that still, you know, gets airplay. And he had another one, Holiday Bar and Curl Cafe. And um, feeling kind of lucky was, was a pretty decent hit for him as well. And, you know, in this part of the country, like out, out in east, shall we say, he was quite popular. But from Alberta to the coast out there, he was like a legend. People covered mm. songs in the bars. And it's going to be a, a really cool evening. Caroline Wiles is going to open the show, and Mike and I are going to back her up. And she just finished a concert at the uh, Westdale where she was invited to sing and play with uh, Gordon Lightfoot's band. Mm, cool. So that was a very cool evening. She's going to do a set first, and then we're going to have Ray for one night only at the Westdale. <laughs> <laughs> so how, what was the response like when you brought this up and you, you said, hey, let's see if we can do this one last one last time? Well, Ray was who I called last because so, I wanted to make sure that I had everybody uh. Every single guy get, just was jumping at the, and they never get to stop phoning me. Well, what about this song? What about this? <laughs> so every, everybody is just so excited about it. And other than covering the cost of this whole thing, we don't care if anybody's in the audience or not. We just yeah, just be a big jam session. Yeah, yeah, because I remember at Maple Leaf Gardens. I wasn't even looking at 16,000 people. We played so well for that set. It was just unbelievable experience to be on a stage with those guys. So, so how do you... Sorry, go ahead. No, go ahead, Bob. So that's all I'm trying to uh, duplicate is uh, the Maple Leaf Gardens concert. <laughs> so how do you prepare for this? Well, everybody's going to just take the records and they're going to go over their parts. And I just started the other day, and uh, I've got a few instruments to, to play that night besides bass, so I'm, I'm, I'm brushing up on them as well. And then uh, when he comes in um, the Thursday before, we're going to have a two-day rehearsal. And uh, as soon as we sit down, we all already know the songs. It'll be like, like easy street. So it, it's not a lot of prep other than getting him to play these songs again. <laughs> so he's done many albums since then. You, you refer to uh, the, the set at Maple Leaf Gardens. It, will it be that same set or, or do you have you planned that yet? Or oh, I've, is... I've got the set list all ready to go and it includes uh, uh, 13 songs and it's, you know, six and seven off of both of those albums. So it's essentially the Maple Leaf Gardens set. Yeah. Uh, with with a few things from at that point, we were promoting the song or the, the album Midnight Matinee which there was another album before that. So we obviously were playing the songs from that as a promotional item. So uh, do you think anything's going to happen in those two days? Because my guess is some pretty cool magic's going to happen before that show, uh, before you guys hit the stage yeah, uh, of the Westdale, and, and, and whether you'll go off that or not. Well, I, I think you're absolutely right. The minute we sit down, we're going to just start rehearsing the tunes in the order that we're going to play them. And the minute that first four bars goes by, I think everybody's going to be smiling. And, <laughs> and after two, we're, we, we're going to do two days of rehearsal just to be safe because some of yeah. them are some of the songs are fade endings. We've got to come up with an ending for the first time, you know. That yeah. Kind of thing. But I am so delighted that that everybody is on board to do this. It's going to be really cool. And do you think it's just a one-off, Bob, or? Well, you never know. I mean, <laughs> um, you know, Gary Slate, who owns uh, half the radio stations in the country, he was the biggest 
fan of Ray. When he heard about it, he's actually out of the country. I mean, he was dying to be here for it because he was uh, actually the Warner rep in Vancouver back, back in those days. So uh, very nice guy. So he, he was on board. You never know. And uh, Bernie Fiedler, who owned the riverboat and was uh, Gordon Lightfoot's booking agent over, over all these years, he's really excited about the fact that it's happening. So I don't know. If we just do one one show and it turns out the way I think it's going to, I'll be happy. <laughs> there you go. You have to make yeah. sure you document this some way too, Bob. Yeah, I sort of <laughs> hesitate. You know, I've been recording my whole life, you know, like everything's recorded. And there's something about doing a performance that's not recorded. Yeah. Uh, that, that I'm a bit of a fan of, you know, just, uh, you know, that way we can lie about it later on. <laughs> That's a good point. It, <laughs> it gets no better problem. and better. It gets better and better every year. Yeah, like fish uh, stories, you know. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So if people want to find out more about all of this, where do we go? Oh, uh, the Westdale Theater website. And if you look at the top, it says live music. You just scroll right down until you see Ray Matarek and click that on and, and you get all the info about Ray that I've just been talking about. All right, Bob Deutsch with us, musician, producer, former owner of Hamilton's legendary Grant Avenue Studios. There's some tales right there. Uh, and now back together with the Ray Materic Band at the Westdale. Here's just a sample of that. And, of course, to find out more, uh, just go to the Westdale website. Bob, good luck with this. Have fun. Enjoy. Savor the moment. Thank you so much. Lots of changes, or, you know, we've certainly talked about uh, uh, changes coming to uh, whether it's uh, what we're watching with uh, with uh, Netflix and, and some of the streaming services that we see, and also with social media and news and who's carrying what and paying for what content and such, uh, whether it's uh, B uh, uh, Bill C-11 or 18 or such. Now Elon Musk, and it really, it's funny, we don't seem to pay attention to this until somebody points it out. Uh, Elon Musk has weighed in on new podcast rules that are part of the CRT's updated approach to streaming services in Canada. And uh, how is it going to change things moving forward? Let's bring in Jeffrey Dvorkin, senior fellow, Massey College, former director of journalism, University of Toronto, Scarborough, and author of Trusting the News in a a Digital Age. Jeff, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. My pleasure, Scott. So what is C11 and what does it mean, Jeff? Well, I don't think it means as much as some people think it might. Um, I went onto the CRTC website to just dig around a little bit and see what they were proposing. And it's to me, although there is a tendency these days for everybody to say, you know, what's the government doing to us now? I think in this instance, it's not entirely negative. I'll tell you why. Well, um, that's good, Jeff. All, it's, it's nice it to just, know, Jeff, that it's not entirely negative. No, no, it's it really. No, is. I'm just kidding. I'm just I, kidding with you, Jeff. Go ahead. I, I realize. <laughs> um, I think one of the things that the CRTC is trying to do is to figure out what is being distributed and what is the nature of the content, so that it's not people who listened or or watch videos or listen to podcasts it's the people who produce them and they have to register their podcast with the CRTC if they are making 10 million dollars or more a year from their podcasts now that means that uh, the guy down the street from me who wants to talk about his garden um, mm-hmm. and probably isn't making any money and is doing it simply because he just likes 
to hear the sound of his own voice, I don't think he has much to, or she has much to worry about. Right. Um, the, but the register of, of social media might be of some concern. Why does the government need to know this? I think there may be a couple of ideas here. And the fact that Elon Musk is objecting to it makes me think that maybe the government isn't doing such a bad job at this point. One, um, this $10 million in annual revenue is quite a, is quite a high bar. Mm -hmm. uh, the second one is that the information about who is paying for this content, I think that's not a bad thing in this time of misinformation and disinformation. Um, if there is a website that is being funded by a government, and I won't name it, um, I think we need to know that. And I think the government has every right to know who is funding what messages and where does this money come from. And I think that that's not a bad idea. We we need to know, uh, we go back to the 2016 American election and we saw that the Russians were very much involved in creating fake websites to go mm -hmm. against Hillary Clinton to make sure that Donald Trump got elected. I think that that the instinct of registering podcasts is not in and of itself a bad thing. I think we need to know who's sending us this information, where it's coming from, and who's paying for it. So this is uh, uh, basically to separate uh, a private, as you said, garden podcast, whatever you want to do, uh, versus commercial podcasts, which are obviously a lot more influential and, and, and obviously generate a lot more revenue. Exactly. And I think that if, if Elon Musk is nervous about this, um, I probably have an idea that he is very much involved in some podcasting efforts through X, formerly known as, uh, I can't even remember what they used to call it. Twitter. Oh, yeah, um, Twitter. Uh, Twitter. Um, I think this is this is very interesting. And I think the people have a right to know who's behind these podcasts, what what their motivation is, and who's how much money are they are they spending to support them? Uh, is uh, this is related, but sort of maybe not related, Jeff. Are we using the same methods to police new media as we did old media? And does that work? Wow. Um, there have been times when old media, TV, radio, and newspapers, community newspapers especially, uh, would publish uh, ideas that were deemed to be really offensive. And I think that under the hate laws of this country, um, the government has a right to know who's saying what and where that information is being disseminated. Um, now, is this an attack on freedom of speech? In a way it is, but it's also making uh, citizens aware of just how complicated that this media landscape has become just even in the last couple of years. Yeah. So I, I, I'm going to give the CRTC and the federal government a bit of a pass on this one now and just see where it goes and see what they do with this information. They, of course, the CRTC and the, and the, and Ottawa, they need to be more transparent about what their purpose is. So I think that, that as citizens, we need to say, yes, go ahead and collect this information, but let us know what you find.
Is this more about uh, monitoring political activity than it is monitoring monitoring uh, revenue? Well, I think it's a it's a bunch of things. I think it's monitoring certain ideas that are being disseminated. Um, we are seeing stories now about after this killing in uh, in British Columbia of this Sikh leader. Yeah. Um, and the pressure on the community, the the Indian community in Canada now, coming from a variety of sources, um, I think we need to know more about that. And I think the government needs to be more transparent about what it's inf- what information it's gathering. Um, there's the tension inside a lot of communities now has has suddenly been raised in the last few weeks. Um, what happened with uh, Honka in the House of Commons, uh, the fact mm. that uh, the Russians, the Kremlin now is saying, see, we were right to, to uh, go after the Nazis in Ukraine, uh, the issue around uh, the rights of Hindus in Canada, and whether uh, school boards should be getting involved in telling students about how the caste system doesn't work in terms of Canadian values. I mean, we are in for an incredibly tense and busy and important time. Uh, Very much so. Uh, So here's a question that can't be answered, Jeff. Um, um, When you're trying to educate or expose or uh, uh, or follow the trail of where some of these sites come from, uh, what have you, where they originated, who funds them and such. When you're trying to say, okay, we just want you to see all of the information. We want you, you know, before you look at anything, you've got to know at least where it's from and, and whether it's legit or not. How do you do that, but also uh, uh, make it seem as if, for example, you're not trying to influence one way or the other? Good question. I don't have an answer. I think what yeah. we need to rely on various groups, some of them inside the university, uh, that are looking at how the internet is being formed, reformed, and deformed uh, for various purposes. Um, there are a couple of institutes, one at the U of T, one at McGill, uh, that are doing exactly that. I'm sure the government is staying in close contact with these folks uh, because they have the ability to do this in a way that is at arm's length from the government. And that's, I think, important because if there is a sense that there's government overreach, that's not going to, uh, that's not going to augur well either. So the fact that there are academic institutions that are monitoring everything that's going on in the internet and especially in Canada now, I think that's, that's probably the best way to proceed. Jeff Dorkin, uh, Jeffrey Dvorkin with a senior fellow Massey College, former director of journalism, University of Toronto, Scarborough, author of Trusting the News in a Digital Age, where we are and how we manage through it all. Always a fascinating discussion, Jeff. Thanks for the time. Be well. My pleasure, Scott. Cheers. Grey Cup festivities. Obviously, we're hearing more and more about what is going to happen uh, for the uh, big week coming up uh, later on. And and we earlier 
last week. We talked about Carrie Underwood coming on board. Now, over the course of the weekend, Green Day announcing they are playing the halftime show. Uh, also celebrating uh, next year, 20 years since uh, American Idiot was released. There you go. Let's bring in Eric Alper, music publicist and commentator. And with us now, Eric, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. I'm good. I'm good. Let's weigh into this argument. <laughs> uh, all right. Let's talk about that. Does it have to be a Canadian act before we even get to the logistics of that silly argument? Do you think it matters anymore if the act is Canadian, this, that or the other? I think it does if you are looking to complain online, which a lot of people have. But this isn't the first time that an American artist have uh, headlined no. the Grey Cup. You know, in 2021, the Arkells headlined over the yep. Lumineers um, in Hamilton. And then before then, you had Alicia Cara and Shania Twain, um, Headley which we won't mention them, Justin Bieber, Carly Rae Jepsen, and Nickelback, they've all headlined. But there has been some American artists too, uh, Keith Urban, um, One Republic, and Fallout Boy, among others. Yep. So I, I can definitely see both sides of the issue. The thing is that, you know, you can have Green Day bring in a absolute worldwide audience. You can have Carrie Underwood do the exact same. So now you've got both the males and the females. And what they're doing this year as well is they're having um, local community organizations and music people like Sonic Onion and Around the Bay and the Hamilton Santa Claus Parade also get involved yeah. by having local artists and local talent and entertainment and businesses surrounding all the things that are going on. There's about 40 events. So I think it's a really good compromise. And, you know, Eric, we talked about this with uh, Hamilton Tourism and such. It's great that because, you know, okay, the Great Cup's coming in. No, we can't do anything else. That's all we can do. And now they've just put everything else piled in with it. And I think that is a fabulous idea because, like you said, it showcases everything. Yeah. And there's also, you know, that case of FOMO that's going on in the world right now, where yeah. once the Grey Cup has to start competing for the advertising dollars with other events that are having star mm. power and that they're drawing larger crowds than, say, a Canadian artist can at this point, then it's easy to make that decision of continuing to get American and UK artists because we're all vying for the same media attention for the event. Just because it's the Grey Cup, that alone will not get rolled. Rolling Stone or Pitchfork or, or or some of the bigger, you know, outlets like Entertainment Tonight in the U.S. put the spotlight not only on Canada, not only on the CFL, but on Hamilton. And that's a really great um, way to get tourism dollars. And also, uh, you, you know, it's as if um, some people think that all you have to do is pick up the phone and just call your favorite star and they'll come and do it as long as you offer the money and such. But again, it's logistics. Lots are on tour. Lots are doing things. And it's not as easy as, hey, I want that one. Why can't we get them? Yeah. Um, it, yeah. I mean, look, they're they're probably starting to put out the feelers maybe a year or two in advance, um, trying to figure out who is going to go on tour, what releases are coming out. Um, what's the perception of the band? Are they going to get into trouble and get canceled three weeks before the event happens? So what they really want is, you know, something with an identity and something that falls along tradition and, you know, and a huge economic benefit. I get the fact that if you had Canadian artists, you would have, you know, Canadian dollars being put back into this country for the support staff and all the other opportunities. But, you know, the, the cultural relevance of having Green Day absolutely puts Hamilton on the mm. map. 
cup. And that's exactly what the Grey Cup should be doing, is showing the world that you can actually play a football game with three downs. Uh, <laughs> great point. <laughs> so how do you do a one-off like this? What's this like for a band? It's like uh, 12 minutes. I remember Springsteen saying one time about the Super Bowl, it's like doing the encore. So h- how do you put that together from a production standpoint? About a couple of weeks before the band will go into rehearsals, shut off their phones and figure out how to cram all of their million selling hits into 12 (laughs) minutes without having to upset those fans that are saying, how come you didn't play this song or that song? Because you're really just doing a medley of all of your greatest hits, Vegas style, um, trying to attract that kind of attention. So you're in rehearsals a lot, trying different tempos, trying different songs, making sure that they fit. And also take a look at those Canadian charts as well, because there might be songs that might have been old favorites that maybe not have done so well in the U.S., but kind of blew up here in in Toronto, in Hamilton, in Canada. So it's a really good way, um, and it and it's a, it, it's a really exciting way for an artist to think about how are we going to condense our entire career in twelve minutes. Uh, but you know, it's good to have that sort of thing on a demo. So if you know you ever get called for it, you know you can do it, right? Uh, what the heck? Yeah, it's good for the resume. In, like I have a feeling that Green Day, the I'm sure that they're, it wouldn't surprise me if they start kicking in a couple of Canadian songs in there just as a wink or a nod. You know, this is a band that has played Hamilton and Toronto in the area dozens of times throughout their mm. career. We're just not going to fly them in and we're going to have to explain, you know, what Canada yeah. is yeah. and maple syrup and all that stuff. This is, they got a lot of love and support in here, especially in the beginning of their careers. All right, Eric Elper with his music publicist and commentary talking about Green Day playing this year's edition of the Grey Cup Halftime Show. And uh, I think you're going to get a a head nod all the way around for this one. Eric, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. Thank you so much for having me. We'll talk soon. We've talked about this many times. uh, And, you know, I was talking to friends about this just over the weekend, how things changed in a post-pandemic world, whether it's um, going to a restaurant or eating on a patio or even uh, what we can now uh, services we can get through our pharmacists. A lot of things have changed uh, since, of course, uh, those uh, three years, two and a half years of uh, of change. Let's bring in Justin Bates, CEO of the Ontario Pharmacists Association, and tell us uh, what is happening now that they're uh, expanding this even a bit uh, further. Justin, thanks for the time. Hope you're doing well. Thanks for having me on, and uh, it's an exciting time uh, in Ontario as we look at uh, catching up, I guess, to the other provinces who have implemented similar programs, but uh, with more expanded lists of of conditions. So what we've seen since the implementation of the 13 minor ailments in January of this year is tremendous uptake uh, and good receptivity from the public. Uh, We've done over... 400,000 assessments um, that would have otherwise have gone through walk-in clinics or primary care, or even in some cases, emergency departments uh, in hospitals. So I think we've uh, demonstrated how this program can divert some of those uh, low complexity conditions so that people can get the care closer to their work and uh, to where they live. And uh, now adding to it just makes sense. Um, These new six conditions continue to be within the scope of the education and training of pharmacists. uh, And I think we'll continue to see building uh, the momentum around adding even more to uh, to the 19 now. Uh, Explain, Justin, how going through the global pandemic changed this, how this even got on the table. Yeah, I mean, it's very interesting that uh, in a lot of 
jurisdictions like Alberta, as an example, pharmacists have been prescribing for over a decade, and they can prescribe any medication that's not a controlled substance or a narcotic. So it, there has been case studies uh, that show how effectively this can be implemented and how safe it is for, for patients. I think for Ontario specifically, it did take uh, a public health crisis to better understand uh, what uh, community pharmacists can do as healthcare hubs and um, aligning the regulatory pieces to their expertise and skill set. And certainly the public's appetite for credible health information and access to a trusted pharmacist is uh, a centerpiece of that. But also the the current situation we have in healthcare overall um, kind of lends itself to leveraging other healthcare providers. We have 2 million approximately Ontarians without a family doctor. We have a system that needs investment across the board. And this is just one uh, one solution that will help uh, drive greater capacity in the system and access for patients. You talked about taking advantage of a pharmacist's skill set. Did this change things for those teams? Did they have to upgrade? Or was this knowledge that was already there? This is uh, primarily knowledge that's already there. So with the six years plus advanced education that gives mm-hmm. uh, a doctorate degree, and basically a PharmD to pharmacists, um, it's incorporated in the schools of pharmacy in the curriculum. And uh, we just haven't been able to practice to that uh, full scope uh, until governments across the country uh, enable this framework for pharmacists to contribute solutions like this, whether it's things around chronic uh, condition management or acute uh, conditions like strep uh, throat, uh, point of care testing, vaccinations, medication reviews, and prescribing authority. These are all things that uh, pharmacists today have. Now, we do support them with education and tools that help, uh, you know, in terms of additional pieces, but um, it's not mandatory and it is part of what they already know and, and what they can do. Does this put too much pressure on the local pharmacy or obviously willing to be a part of this? Yeah, I mean, it's a great question because what we've seen across the healthcare system, particularly through the last three years, is a overburden healthcare providers and uh, burnout, uh, shortages of labor and so forth. I do think we're we're on the other side of that. We have more and more pharmacists graduating now and pharmacy technicians that are regulated. And uh, we've incorporated this already into the workflow. And keep in mind that many of these services, they were provided in terms of Uh, off the counter, if you will, off to the side, uh, OTC counseling, we just couldn't prescribe uh, and often had to refer the patient to Mm. uh, a family physician. So this enables the full circle of care, if you will, in terms of being able to see it to its end of a treatment and monitor that patient. So it's not net new in in a lot of ways. Um, And now we can get uh, fairly reimbursed for it as well. Doctors happy about this? Because, you know, again, uh, often just anything to get you in because they want to see you and check you out and such. Uh, Does this mean less trips to the doctor? Which is obviously a good thing, but is that a bad thing? Yeah, I mean, I think like any new scope of practice, uh, whether it's nurses or pharmacists or optometrists, there's going to be uh, initial concern and pushback um, from a, a smaller cohort of each stakeholder. And, and we've seen some of that, um, you know, concerns raised. Uh, but the data set that we have from both uh, Canada and, and other countries as well just shows how effective this is. And it's really not about taking from one provider and giving to another. There's more than enough to go around. It's about in an integrated system, collaborative yeah. care. Uh, and we need to continue to invest in primary care as well, hiring more doctors and so forth. I mean, it's unacceptable that we have 
the gap that we do with 2 million people that essentially don't have a primary care physician. So this will help, uh, but it's not the, the only part of that solution. How do you, this was just expanded, uh, will it continue to expand? How do you decide that? What criteria goes into that? Mm-hmm. Well, our hope is that uh, it will. Um, the minister has directed the college uh, to look at an additional 17 ailments uh, that could be implemented uh, in 2024 at some point. The college needs to draft, our regulatory college needs to draft uh, regulations, do public consultations that then go for consideration of approval to government um, before they become uh, law. But uh, I would say that uh, given that we're at 19 and other provinces have more than 30, uh, it's hmm. reasonable to expect that we can continue to build on the momentum of the program. Uh, and, you know, we're doing it in a, in a phased approach, obviously. But there's some pretty big misses uh, when you think about women's health uh, around birth control, emergency contraception. I mean, these are things that uh, Ontario and Manitoba are the only provinces that can't prescribe for those medications. So, and I think we need to address that and, and continue to evolve the program so that we have uh, a full list of uh of, of conditions that will mirror the other provinces. Ontario pharmacists have had their prescription powers expanded. Justin Bates with the CEO of the Ontario Pharmacist Association. Justin, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. You too. Thank you. If Scott Thompson isn't satisfied with an answer, he'll delve into the issue until he is. You're listening to Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. There's uh, certainly been lots of issues uh, over the last little while, specifically a uh, not a good summer for the Prime Minister. Um, you, you know, just go back, just uh, follow the timeline from present to past, whether it's uh, the situation with President Zelensky of the Ukraine and addressing Parliament and a Nazi in the gallery and the commotion that's been caused with that and the Speaker of the House and the apology and such. Prior to that, the week before that, it was the whole India situation and announcing in the House of Commons that uh, India may have had uh, something to do with uh, the assassination of a Sikh separatist leader in British Columbia, uh, trade and all sorts of discussions off the rails as a result of that. Uh, prior to that, election interference Chinese Communist Party, the two Michaels, Michael Chong, all of that. It just seems that uh, it's one thing after another, whether it's communications or the left hand not knowing what the right hand is doing. It seems that uh, many segments of the population are uh, unhappy with the prime minister. Is there a quiet movement within the party to replace them? We talked to Ter- uh, Tasha Kiridin, uh National Post had a column there last week in regard to uh, uh, Mr. Carney and the former Bank of Canada uh, governor possibly uh, code, uh, courting support for uh, a possible run at the uh, prime minister's seats. Anita Anon, another person who's been uh, who's been uh, suggested to take this uh, before the brand is. Well, there's not much left of it. And considering an election is still far away, if you're going to do this, do you need some uh, run up time to educate the public on who the new leader is. Let's bring in Dr. Raheem Mohammed, political commentator and writer specializing in comparative politics, natural resources, and political economy, former press professor with Center College, Wake Forest University, and here now. Raheem, thank you for the time. Hope you're well. Yeah, it's getting a little hard to follow, isn't it, Scott? 
It, it really is. And I heard a commentator say at the end of last week, is there a group out there that a segment of the voting public who he hasn't offended or isn't upset with them? Uh, and, and I've said many times, and, and everybody on this show knows where I stand on this, and, and I consider myself a centrist. I voted for all three of these parties. Um, but he has really seemed to take this left of center party uh, to the extreme left. And and I'm just wondering, are, are liberals going to sit by and watch this happen? Happen. Well, historically speaking, the summer is supposed to be a better time for an incumbent government because you're doing the photo ops, you know, flipping pancakes, uh, you're cutting checks, you're cutting ribbons, um, and it's when you're in the House. Uh, that's when it's supposed to be a better time for opposition. Um, you know, you're getting grilled by opposition, you know, each and every day. Uh, you're passing challenging pieces of legislation. Um, so already, you know, we see the liberal government really limp into the House for the fall session, and it's not going to be a particularly easy session either. You have a lot of uh, contentious legislation um, coming up the pipe. Um, for instance, um, bills to regulate online expression, um, you know, more stuff with the CRTC and the Internet. Uh, so it's difficult to see uh, you know, where the liberals pick up momentum from here. Uh, obviously, if you ask any pundit, they'll say, no, ain't going to happen. He's sticking in till the very end. Uh, he's already made that clear. Uh, they've had meetings, caucus meetings, what have you. That's all set in stone. But is it? So um, it's interesting you mentioned Tasha Carradine's article about, uh, you know, Mark Carney uh, supposedly warming up in the bullpen. Um, I think the tricky part is, you know, a lot of the people who are in her cabinet, uh, you know, Christia Freeland, uh, Melanie Jolie, and even Jean-Philippe Champagne now, um, you know, are kind of stuck with the stench uh, of Justin Trudeau. So at yeah. this point, uh, you know, kind of the best option is to either look externally or, um, as you mentioned, some sort of maverick uh, like like Anidia Anand, who's had a very public uh, falling out and demotion um, from Justin Trudeau. Um, mm-hmm. So I think um, part of the issue is, okay, if not, Trudeau who? So, uh, or is the, the question, Raheem, uh, anybody but? Yeah, I don't think we've quite got to that point yet. I think, um, you know, what, whatever you say about Trudeau, he's, he's the devil you know. Canadians at this point know what he's sure. about. Yep. He's, he's familiar. And, um, you know, to an extent, he's the liberal brand and the liberal brand is him. So, um, you know, potentially if the economy gets worse, you know, potentially if there are more missteps. Um, but I don't see in anybody but Trudeau movement uh, coming to the fore just yet. Do you see the leader being someone cut from the same cloth, like a Jolie, like a Freeland, or somebody who is uh, outside, whether it's Carney or Anon, whoever? So, I mean, for me, the big uh, pendulum is, you know, you have your blue Bay Street liberals like Paul Martin, and you have your more social liberals uh, like Trudeau the Elder. And I think, um, you know, for the eight years Trudeau has been in power, um, you've had more kind of the left flank of the party running the show. And I think there's a call now for fiscal responsibility. So I think someone who has blue liberal credentials, you know, someone who's been on Bay Street, someone like Carney, um, you know, who has experience as a central bank governor um, or, or as the governor of Bank of Canada, um, that could be a very attractive prospect, um, particularly uh, with the economy looking like it's going to get worse before it's going to get better. And I think uh, a lot of tough uh, economic choices and and um, and uh, challenges ahead. 
Uh, obviously, uh, you know, if you look for between now and when the next election could possibly be, uh, some may say that's a long time. Lots can happen between then. But then again, if you're changing direction, that's, you know, the runway is only so long to educate the public on who the new person is. Is, is that the balance? At what time, at what, at what point do you, do you make that decision? Do, do numbers, for example, have to drop into single digits? What, is there, a, is there a criteria? trigger here? So the one saving grace for the liberals is that the one person who's had a worse year so far than Justin Trudeau is Jagmeet Singh. Uh, virtually all mm. of the support um, that, you know, been drawn away from the liberals has gone to the conservatives. And it's actually impressive to me um, how little momentum, uh, you know, the NDP has been able to gain out of, uh, you know, this collapse of the liberals. So I think um, if, you know, there, there's one person who doesn't want an election just yet, it's Jagmeet Singh. Um, so I think that gives the Liberal Party some uh, runway um, for, you know, if they're going to make a major personnel change or, or change at the top, uh, you know, they will likely have until 2025 uh, to uh, to roll up a new team. Uh, you talked about Jagmeet Singh, and, and many have said on the show that it, it really hasn't seemed to, to work for him in the, in the polling numbers and such, that uh, that they're staying flat or they're dropped. Uh, is, is Jagmeet Singh or the NDP viewed as part of the problem or as the alternative here? So I think that that's unfortunate. You know, that's, generally speaking, when you see these kind of coalition agreements, when you see the confidence supply agreements, um, a lot of the time it puts the junior partner in a kind of no man's land. Um, so you saw that with the Liberal Democrats across the pond um, in, in the 2010s. Um, you know, you're kind of in a no win situation where you're criticizing the government, but you're also part of the government. You're part of the problem. Um, so that leaves someone like Jagmeet Singh uh, with very little room to maneuver. Um, and these agreements rarely, uh, for that reason, work out for the junior partner. So would there be a good time for him to pull the plug? Is it, is it something that he, you measure or do you just you've made the decision, you ride it out? So I think for Jagmeet Singh, um, I think he, he has to know that his days in the leader's chair are numbered. Um, you know, I'm not sure how long he's been there. I don't know, uh, you know what the implications are for him collecting a pension. Uh, but I think at this point, um, you know, he's thinking about survival. Um, you know, he's thinking about ex- extending his time, uh, you know, at the helm uh, as long as possible and potentially uh, changing circumstances uh, working in his favor. So, again, um, I don't think there's an incentive, you know, barring unforeseen circumstances um, for him uh, to to pull the plug, uh, you know, prior to that specified uh, 2025 end date. So uh, as far as the ruling party, uh, best to keep on the status quo, hope that time is on their side and things settle down, or has there been so much water under the bridge that eh, you're going to have to really pull a rabbit out of your hat here to to turn this around? So, I I mean, we'll see how the next month or so goes. I mean, I I think it's hard for me to imagine, you know, a bigger screw up than inviting, you know, a literal Nazi to the House of Commons when when, um, the president of Ukraine is in town, but but we'll see. You know how the next month or so goes. Um, if if Trudeau continues to spiral, uh, you know potentially we will see tensions within the caucus boiling over. Um, you know there are already people you know who are um, you know venting to the press um, and sort of their whispers under the surface. So potentially um, we will get um, more uh, of an open caucus re- revolt. And if that were to happen, um, I, I think we could see Trudeau's days be numbered. Uh, many have said uh, that one of these events would be enough, a sequence of these events all added together. Um, obviously, the more that this happens, have we hit so many now that 
opinions are made up. Uh, is this just something that keeps falling? Can they turn it around? So, what do they have to do to do that? Yeah, I, I mean, I, I would say um, it's interesting. I look across the bond at uh, the United Kingdom and you've had, you know, three or four resignations of prime ministers. Um, you know, any one of those things that, you know, if Trudeau had done, he'd have been able to survive. So I think Trudeau is just Teflon coated. Um, you know, you can go all the way back, back to SNC level N, you know, Oxycon mm. Island, any number of scandals um, that I think might have taken out um, a, a lesser prime minister. But, but for whatever reason, Trudeau, uh, you know, seems to be able to survive uh, these, um, these obstacles. So I, I, I don't know if that's a matter of skill or happenstance, but for whatever reason, um, you know, I, I just, um, you know, I, I just don't see one taking them out. Dr. Raheem Mohammed with us, political commentator, writer specializing in comparative politics, natural resources, political economy, former professor with Center College, Wake Forest University. Raheem, fascinating discussion. We'll see where it goes. Be well. You as well. Thank you. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. You know, this has sort of been the trend for a while, and it's uh, it's concerning, it's sad, but uh, it continues. According to a recent national survey from Leger, young Canadians don't see a positive future for themselves right now, uh, especially uh, specifically uh, Gen Z up into millennials, which basically anybody born in the 80s and above. Uh, so uh, how do you turn that around? Difference between one generation generation to the other. Let's bring in Andrew Enns, Executive Vice President, uh, President Central Canada for Leger, and here now. Andrew, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. Doing well. Nice to, nice to be back on the program, Scott. Andrew, unfortunately, this seems to be a trend that's continuing. Um, young Canadians are feeling the struggle more so and, and, and more hopelessness, I guess. Yes, for sure. Like we've been, uh, we annually we've been we've been conducting some research work into this, as you say, the Gen Z millennial uh, crowd. Which for those out there listening, uh, sort of age sixteen to twenty seven, twenty six for the Gen Z, and then twenty eight to forty year olds for the millennials. And over the course of years, we're seeing um, you know optimism about about their about the future. Uh, going down, concerns regarding um, climate change in particular, that's trending up. Uh, there's uh, there's pessimism around the ability to, um, you know, for, uh, you know, for for the country to take the necessary steps to sort of turn around things on, on climate change. Um, so, yeah, it's not a, I mean, there, there's an aspect out there that uh, is not overly optimistic. Uh, it's interesting um, that uh, in some ways uh, how the two cohorts think the same, but then they kind of think differently. What are there? Is there much difference between what Gen Z or Gen Z's thinking and what millennials are thinking? You know, on a on a couple, there there are a few. Uh, there's a few differences. Uh, perhaps not surprising, the Gen Zs, the younger uh, the younger adults uh, in our in our survey. They're a little bit more um, optim. They, they show some sense of optimism around technology, uh, kind of weighing in and potentially, uh, potentially kind of uh, helping solve uh, some of the issues. Uh, they're a little more optimistic around artificial intelligence, but certainly when it comes to uh, you know the technologies or around addressing the impacts of climate change, they're more optimistic than the uh, millennials, the older of our uh, right. of our study cohort. Um, we also see a little bit of, um, you know, uh, it's interesting. You see, the Gen Zs are a little more critical of the 
generations that that preceded them in terms of being kind of to blame for some of the challenges we've currently got when it comes to climate change. So, uh, so it's interesting as the millennials as the millennials get a little bit uh, older, um, they tend to be a little less critical of those future generation, maybe because now they see they're potentially sort of part of that. Isn't it funny how that works, right? <laughs> yeah, um, so, uh, you know, it's interesting. How much do you think, Andrew, living through the three years of a global pandemic, and let's be honest, it literally stopped the world for two and a half, two to three years, what have you. How do you think that how much that played a factor in all of this? And I say that because I'm a 60-year-old guy, and I remember saying to my mother, who lived through the Second World War, and she would tell us about the struggles and, and how difficult it was in the old country and all that stuff. And I remember being a younger person thinking, well, you know, we've been pretty lucky. We haven't really had to deal with this. And then all of a sudden, the global pandemic hit us, and it reminded her of the war all over again. So so how much of that has to do with just what we've been through in the last three years, making it even more difficult? I, you know, I think there is something, uh, something to that, uh, Scott. We pulled, when we were polling at Leger and during the pandemic, and we were polling uh, weekly for a period of time in, in the real height of it, the one thing that really never changed was the, 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 the societal kind of impact on, on that 18 to 34 crowd. Mm -hmm. And it's not the perfect fit for for this study but certainly on on a uh, on a mental uh, side of things and on a on a frustration with lockdowns and with some of the closures and the inability to see friends and uh, the disruption to work you saw that amplified in that 18 to 34 that young adult uh, crowd and i i don't for a minute think that that some of this um has has transitioned with that group on other issues now uh you know, I think, and I think you and I talked about it, but I recall back in, in 2022, we finally had vaccines in full swing. We were, we were making the break um, out of lockdowns and we felt good about things and, and we promptly walked into a wall of inflation. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and struggled with services. Like all of a sudden, you know, yeah. restaurants couldn't get staff and, and all the, and I think that was just, for for that age group that that wanted to get out and get back to normal, the reality was well that the normal post pandemic isn't the normal of what it was pre pandemic, and I think yeah. that's that's an adjustment factor for, uh, for for a lot of us. But I think I think for this group, uh, you know, because they've got so many things coming at them, and there's there's yeah. there's tons of opportunity. But I think with opportunity, I think they see tons of challenge too sometimes. That being said, do they realize it has been worse? Um, you know, and I can think of one portion of your poll where it said there's one in 10 that said they, they don't believe in bringing children into the world. And I use this example a lot. I remember being a kid in the 70s when All in the Family was a big TV show and the daughter and the son-in-law were debating Michael whether to Gloria. have kids. <laughs> yeah, exactly. They were debating whether to have kids because there was a gasoline shortage and there was the threat of nuclear war and all this other stuff. And it's like, uh, you know, and the older parents saying, you know, we've lived through WW2. What is I mean, do we realize we've been there before? We can get through this. Have we? Why? Why don't we have that hope or thought? Well, you you, you know, it, it's it's interesting because you're right. Like, look, we have this generation is growing up in in the era of the climate crisis, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, that's what we're we're sort of. But I think to myself in the uh, 
late, you know, when I started to sort of have more recognition of what was going on around me in the world and, and that, you know, sort of mid to late seventies into the eighties, I mean, we were, we were looking at in down the barrel of nu- nuclear annihilation yeah. and trying to solve that, solve that out. And, and, I think we 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 worried and stressed, and I'm sure there were people that were well, there were people that were chaining themselves to military uh, installations to mm-hmm. try to block um, you know nuclear uh, you know nuclear arms from being delivered. So you know I don't know if there's a context here about you know we've we've seen we've seen crises before and we've worked through these things and we've somehow managed to figure out a way to keep going. I mean. I do find in in our in our poll of this of this cohort, Scott, you've got on one hand, I mean, you've got sixty six percent, two thirds of this crowd equal between generations feel generally happy in life. Yeah. But yeah. then I've got almost an equal number who are super concerned about the impact of climate change. Yeah. And you know, you we there's a question here where I'm talking are living, you know, half of them are living paycheck to paycheck. Yeah. Which there's a lot of um I, I just think there's a lot of stresses, but there's also it's a time of uh, people are looking forward to life. You're you're breaking free. You're 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 starting your way in this adulthood, and I mean it's uh, it's hard to pin everything down on one sort of factor. I think there's a lot of competing uh, channels of of opinion going on with this. Crowd. And and anything like this, as many opportunities as there are downfalls, and it, this very much this very much is a new time, I think, for everybody. Andrew ends with us, Executive Vice President, Central Canada Leger, engaging the moods of young Canadians. Andrew, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. I appreciate the interest in our uh, Leger polling, Scott. Have a good rest of your program. All right, let me ask you this, and you can send me a note if you want, because um, we have a, a very wide range of uh, listeners uh, on this show and on this radio station. What was the minimum wage when you started your first job? Do you remember? Do you remember what your minimum wage, I believe, for me, it was about 380 380 an hour was what I got to uh, empty the trash and push a broom and wash the windows. At a at a local store, on the weekends and during the week, that sort of thing, uh, three eighty five, three eighty, somewhere in there, I remember. And um, now it is up to sixteen fifty five an hour. Sorry, sixteen fifty five an hour. Yes, and 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 many are saying, and when they're talking about minimum wages, they they tie the conversation to a living wage which there's always been debate is the minimum wage designed to be a living wage or is it an introductory wage uh, someplace where you start the majority of those that receive minimum wage are 25 uh, and under the years of 25 years of age um, so it, it, is that the objective I, I don't think uh, anybody could live on 385 an hour back in my day when I started working at 16 years of age um, much more or much easier than they could today at 16 55 an hour. Um, is this good for everybody? Is it good and bad? How do you find the balance? Let's bring in Randy Robinson, political economist and Ontario director for the Canadian Centre for Policy Alternatives and with us now. Randy, thank you for the time. Hope you're well. I am very well. Thanks for having me. So when the minimum wage goes up, is it great for everybody? It's, it seems that that's all we're screaming for is a higher minimum wage. People need to make a living uh, at, at the minimum wage level. Is is this all good or is there fallout to this? Well, to me, it's all good. I mean, you have probably, uh, if you take the people who are earning minimum wage 
last Friday and the ones who are earning less than sixteen fifty-five an hour, you're probably talking about about 900,000 people in Ontario getting a pay raise, which they desperately need. You know, we've been talking uh, about inflation a lot these last couple of years and households at all income levels are saying, you know, this inflation, the cost of housing, the cost of groceries is uh, it's just something we can't we can't absorb, we can't handle. But think of how much worse it is for people who were making fifteen fifty an hour. Uh, this is definitely something they need to uh, to boost their incomes. The problem is it's not enough because, as you mentioned, with the living wage, if you look around Ontario, the average living wage is about twenty dollars an hour, and that's based on the idea. It's a kind of a composite number, but it's based on the idea that you are living with someone else who also works. Um, if you look at what it costs to uh, rent an apartment these days, you know, um, if you wanted to rent a one bedroom apartment in Hamilton last year, you need to be making $23 an hour. So um, it's it's good that the minimum wage is going up, but it's not enough. Um, is the minimum wage, and this is an ongoing debate, Randy, which you and I will have, but uh, is the minimum wage designed to be a livable wage? Because, again, I use the example of what it was when I was a young kid, and I don't think you could live on it then either. I don't know what it was designed to be, but I do know that the the number of people and the, and the age of the people who are making uh, minimum wage has changed a lot. If you go back 20 years, you could say, yeah, the majority – uh, of people earning minimum wage were uh, uh, students or teens or, you know, in their early 20s. We're now at the point where the, the majority of people earning minimum wage are adults. And that's just the way the uh, the labor market has changed. So the idea that the minimum wage is kind of like a temporary transition that you kind of go through and it's miserable, but maybe you're living with your parents anyway, that's just not the case anymore. People really do need the minimum wage to help them live and, and uh, you know, have a halfway decent life as adults. How do you balance this now? As you said, um, uh, now it's $20 or people are talking about $20. I remember when the whole daycare issue started, it was about $10 a day daycare. And I'm thinking, how long can we even hold that in place? Um, is this something that'll be forever floating? Is it, does it get to a point where, you know, everybody will be happy and then adjust by inflation? What are your thoughts? Well, in Ontario right now, uh, by law, the minimum wage is adjusted to inflation each year on October 1st. And that was something that started in 2014 with the uh, previous Liberal government in Ontario. They brought that in. Uh, the only problem was uh, the current government froze the minimum wage for all of uh, 2019, 2020 and 2021. So it's not as high as it would have been if it were adjusted for inflation. If it had been adjusted, it would be more like 1740 already. Uh, the problem is, though, when you have something that's too low and then you adjust it to inflation, it's still too low. And uh, that's the situation we're in right now. Uh, latest figures, uh, just over uh, 55% of minimum wage earners are over the age of 25. Younger demographics still earn the minimum wage at much higher rates. For example, 69% of the minimum wage earners are under the age of 34, while only 11 are over the age of, of 55. Do you think we're spending, and, and I understand your passion for this, but do you think we're spending too much time looking at this, like at, at, at this issue, as opposed to how to get people beyond minimum wage? 
Uh, that's a very interesting question, and and uh, governments at all times are are spending a lot of uh, uh, time and energy uh, talking about this. But really, the thing that drives up wages is uh, well, a couple of things. I mean, you can look at the skills of your workforce, which uh, you know we're doing things to uh, improve the skills of the workforce. Uh, Ontario has a very highly educated uh, workforce, but then the other thing that's going on is just simply bargaining power. Um, there's no particular reason why a mega corporation like uh, Tim Hortons or McDonald's has to pay minimum wage. They could certainly afford to pay better, but you don't see a high level of unionization in that uh, uh, in some of those uh, employers. And uh, the, the employers are just not feeling the pressure that would make them drive up uh, wages. Uh, you know, if you're in Hamilton, you know, the history of the labor movement in Hamilton or Windsor or Oshawa or anywhere in industrial southern Ontario was built by people saying, you know what, I don't care what the boss thinks we're worth. Uh, we're worth more than they say. And, um, you know, that's that's a crucial issue around the minimum wage. Is, what about uh, uh, we've talked? We've talked to many in the hospitality industry over the course of, of the pandemic and such and, and many small retailer, and they say they're going to get nailed with this. And um, there's m- some chatter about this will increase the amount of automation going on since at minimum wage, it's usually minimum skill. Well, I don't know if there really is such a thing as a low-skilled job. Every job requires some skill. I do know that this past week, the uh, the minimum wage for fast food workers in California just went up to $20. And, of course, that's $20 U.S. And the reason for that is uh, people need to be able to live. You know, are, you concerned about auto- are you concerned about automation, Randy? Um, I, If you look at what employers tend to do, um, they will um uh how to put this they are always looking at ways to automate because labor is invariably the highest cost of 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 most occupations i don't think they're going to automate more than they can than they have done already for the simple reason that they're already trying to uh, automate as much as possible one of the problems we get into with talking about wages though is uh you know there's there's always this concern that uh unemployment will surge if the uh, if the minimum wage goes up and that doesn't tend to be the case when you look at the empirical data in fact two years ago three economists won the nobel prize in economics including one canadian from guelph who um in, uh, demonstrated that in fact when you raise the minimum wage you don't lose jobs you might lose them in individual employers but that happens in capitalism all the time jobs are opening and closing constantly um, and the reason for that, I think, is that people, some, some economists tend to treat labor as like, as if it's just another input, like a sheet of plywood or a tank of gas in some deliver, delivery vehicle. But in fact, labor is the source of demand in the economy. So when you put money in the pockets of low-income workers, they spend it, and it goes right back into the economy. And that that supports jobs. It doesn't take them away. Randy Robinson with us, political economist, Ontario Director for the Canadian Centre for Policy Alternatives on the Minimum Wage in Ontario, rising on Sunday to sixteen fifty-five an hour. Randy, thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. Uh, thank you very much. You too. When there's an issue, Scott is all in on getting to the heart of it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML.
Remember when the whole Ukraine war thing started and, and the Russian invasion of Ukraine? I'm making it sound like it's Ukraine's war. It's no. Russia invaded Ukraine. And uh, all sorts of chatter and support for Ukraine. And yeah, yeah, we're going to meet our 2% and what have you. And then there was some Pentagon papers that were leaked. Uh, through some nefarious person, and it came out in a meeting that uh, uh, the Prime Minister had told officials that we have no intention of meeting our 2% uh, of GDP spending on uh, defense, and now we're finding out that beyond all of that, that uh, we're going to try to cut a billion dollars from spending at a time when we're supposed to be increasing it. How does that all fit in with helping Ukraine and supposedly buying new jets and such? Let's bring in Richard Schmuka, Senior Fellow, McDonald Laurier Institute with expertise in Canadian and American foreign policy, defense procurement and such. And Richard is with us now. Richard, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. I am. Thanks for having me. So. so how do we balance all of this, whether it's, uh, well, first of all, are we going to hit our 2% or is that, uh, do we get an official uh, an official uh, uh, answer to that? Will we or will we not ever hit that? Oh, I, I doubt that we ever will under the current, uh, under the current sort of profiling budget, especially with this cut. Uh, there's just, it's possible, but I, I, I really don't. Like in, in practical terms, there's been a lot of times where we've, I would say this government has kind of said we will meet this mark for funding. Uh, there was 2017. We had what was called Strong, Secure, and Engage, which was the white paper that identified uh, future funding for capabilities and operations until 20, I think it's 2035, 2040. And there was potentially it might have reached a certain point. But the reality is that a lot of the funding that was promised in that document never materialized. And now we're seeing another budget cutback. So in practical terms, no, we won't reach it. So how do we balance giving what we need to Ukraine? And then there's also rumors that, you know, we're buying the F-35s and then there's eight more planes coming in, blah, blah, blah. How, does this all get included in that? How does that all fit into the picture? Yeah, so a lot of that has been previously budgeted for. That was, again, Strong Security Engage had a lot of the sort of funding commitments tied to it. The problem is, is that uh, it would have, I, I think it would have came short even then. Um, there's a big program that has been announced that will probably come in the couple coming months here, uh, a submarine program to replace our four uh, elderly uh, submarines that we've got, the Victoria class. That may get us close, but part of the big part of the problem with understanding the budget of the Department of Defense is that it is tied a large part to operations. So if we're not deployed abroad, you know, our budget will actually be significantly less. The thing is that our current budget is actually quite high because we have operations to places like Latvia. Uh, we we had a uh, we were supporting in Mali, and we have a sort of a interdiction maritime interdiction in uh, around North Korea. Those things kind of mask what the actual budget is about. So part of the problem that we've had in the past couple of decades here is that we actually don't spend enough on procurement you typically want to have yeah. about your third of your budget looking at capital equipment uh so fighters tanks and whatever right because that's the stuff what the military really needs to keep operating and we've never really come close to that uh we're usually around 20 percent or less and so what's actually happened is that we have what's called a bow wave we have a large amount of equipment that's getting older and older and older we need to replace them quickly because you know, they're getting to the point where they can't be used or obsolete or they have something called rust out where they're just unable to be maintaining or have to be discarded. And there's so many systems that kind of fit this kind of uh, rust out date that 
the Canadian Armed Forces just can't even operate effectively. And it costs way more time and way more sort of money to actually operate it because it takes more maintenance. Like just like an old car, yeah. you know, when when you get like after, let's say, 200,000 kilometers, your maintenance bill skyrockets and the Canadian mm-hmm. Forces see that all across the board. Um, you know, we've we've heard over years, obviously, not necessarily a priority for Canadians or Canadians go- go- governments or such. But, um, you know, uh, back to the 80s and the fall of the Soviet Union, it's a much, much different world now uh, in a post pandemic world uh, with what we're seeing with China, even India interference and such. And, and obviously with the Russian invasion of Ukraine. So can we keep using the excuse, well, they didn't do it last time. They didn't do it that time before that. We're not going to do I mean, isn't it a different situation now? Oh, absolutely. I think if you look at all of our close allies, look at Germany, Japan, uh, certainly the United States has become more serious. The United Kingdom, all of them have looked at what has happened in, U- uh, in Ukraine and also what's happened in, East, in, uh, in the Pacific with China and, and sort of in, around it with Taiwan. And they've become justifiably nervous. And they've certainly increased their defense budget. Germany's gone to near 2% after years of saying at 1%. So is the Japanese. They've, they've exceeded what they used to be their 1% guideline of uh, GDP. And they're going to come towards 2%, if not next year, in the next couple of years here. So they've all looked at this international situation and said, this is a serious problem. We need to actually be serious about our defense and have invested accordingly. Canada's basically, Canada's budget has gone up. Partly because the government has been unwilling to do procurement, but in order to sort of allay allied sort of concerns about us not doing enough, they keep deploying the forces to a point where a lot of the a lot of the equipment that is was quite old already are fast approaching or or have been actually beyond what they can be used and have to be discarded because you, because we just use them so much more heavily, and now the forces are in a real sort of turning point where a lot of the capabilities the core stuff we think about the frigates the fighters all of that they're they're just they're not they're obsolete they're <clears throat> unmaintainable and and we have less and less armed forces to actually do basic military things uh, it seems, again, as we've said before, this is not a priority uh, for Canadians or government of such until things change with the Russian invasion of Ukraine and such. But is there is there not any advantage to upgrading all of this equipment? Again, less on the uh, less on the uh, obligations, more on the equipment. Um, you know, obviously, it costs a tremendous amount of money, and there's money that needs to be spent in every direction when you're in government. But is there not an advantage to doing this over and above security? Well, there's a bunch of reasons. I would say just on security side, a lot of people think, oh, well, you know, Canada doesn't do anything, you know, the US will come and save us. But yeah, the United States is becoming increasingly unhappy with this situation. And when they see that, and you're starting to see with Congress members, they're unwilling to make cut us deals on stuff like trade on bilateral sort of, let's say, on softwood lumber, because they see, well, we're just paying for your defense, you're not paying for that. And you want to deal on softwood lumber? I'm not going to support that. And it's becoming increasingly apparent. I think another example you saw with the alleged assassination of the Sikh Gurdwara member uh, Mm -hmm. earlier this year, a lot of our allies barely made a comment about it. And Canada Mm -hmm. went out and looked for support and a lot of said, well, okay, we'll give you like a sort of, we'll wait for the investigation. But they're very uncomfortable sort of, you know, supporting our position, especially because India in geostrategic terms is important. And, you know, had we been a better ally, had we been spending that, I don't know if they, they would have been that reticent to sort of make a make such a statement. So 
there's real cost to this. I, I think Canadians think it's just about security. No, no, no. A lot of these countries. That's it for trade. us. Thanks for listening. Think, well, As always, you know, we leave it to you, the tax-paying customer, to have the last They're less word. inclined to help us, and and that's become apparent. I, I can tell you, just in private conversations, a lot of foreign uh, foreign ministries are like, "Well, you guys aren't doing very much. This is going to cost you in other ways." Uh, is there any change you think will change? Is there any chance we will change direction uh, direction on this, or uh, still plowing through with a cut of one billion? That stands out. That makes headlines. Oh, I think it's quite apparent that even even a lot of people that supported liberal parties are a bit dismayed at this. I, I think there were a lot of individuals that had previously been very trenchant in their support of the party were uh, came out on Twitter and whatnot and said. This is not what you should be doing right now. But maybe that will change your minds. But I think given how even their previous statements, like I said before, strong, secure, and engaged, you know, was was said to have X amount of dollars. And we're seeing that that never materialized. I don't think they're going to change tack. I think that in some ways, this is maybe partly an ideological view that, well, you know, we have to support our domestic, their domestic issues more and more. And they think they can skate by without actually, with, you know, even with our allies kind of criticizing, we can skate by without actually doing anything or, you know, reducing defense. Whereas I don't know if that's true, because I think if you talk to a lot of the sort of foreign capitals, they are not, they are, they are not pleased by this at all. And, and it's starting to catch up with us. Richard Schmuka with us, senior fellow, McDonald Laurier Institute, Canada's ongoing troubles with defense spending continue. And now a cut of up to one billion. Richard, thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. Thank you very much. You too. Scott Radley is coming up. You can read him in your Hamilton Spectator. He is here now. Scott, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. Oh, hey, welcome to July, Scott. <laughs> Isn't that something? I think it very nice. You know, September, the last couple of Septembers have been pretty nice. Uh, I was at a friend's the other day and the, his pool's closed. And uh, he was saying, yeah, I did it too early. But even over uh, August, they didn't use it very much. It was just so inconsistent. Yeah, it has been. Uh, we've got a pool and it's been wildly inconsistent. But I'm, ours is still open. I just got to heat oh, it up. Oh, cool. I just got to heat it up the next couple of days so that we can actually use it. But yeah, it's... Uh it's all good. Who who can't like this kind of weather right now? Absolutely, but you better start heating it up now, and because by the weekend it's yep. supposed to get cold again. Oh yeah, it's we'll be skating to... on it by the weekend. <laughs> well, you know what? Welcome to Canada. Heat her up, heat her up now. Get a couple of dips in, and then you know by the time you're cooking your turkey dinner, there'll be steam coming off it or dollar bills, and you can go in it that's again. You know, the before point. You... Yes, that's the <laughs> point for sure. Get it going for one. Do the polar dip on the on the, on the Thanksgiving weekend. No, that is, right. that is for sure the truth. Yeah, go ahead. All right. Grey Cup festivities. Mm-hmm. I must admit, uh, you know, what I think is pretty cool here is how much they're incorporating various things that are going on, whether it's uh, around the bay, whether it's the Christmas parade, Santa Claus parade, whether it's, uh, you know, like a, a super crawl installation. They got a lot of stuff going on, and they're not saying, well, no, we can't all do that in one weekend because we got the Grey Cup thing going on. Then, yeah, mush it all in together, and it'll be busy, but I think it'll be great and now green day added as the halftime show your thoughts there are you one of those canadians that are upset they're not a canadian band well i, I am conflicted about this because i do like green day and i'm glad I, I i i'm looking forward to hearing green day but yes i am one of those people who believe strongly that this is the largest platform in canadian arts in canadian music canadian arts i i do believe it should be a Canadian band that gets that spot. But as I say, I, I do, I mean, as I said, I'm conflicted because I like Green Day. I just, I said it before they announced it. I was on my show talking with Bob O'Neill about it. 
I really believe that this is a, this whole Grey Cup thing is a, is a festival of Canadiana and it's a missed opportunity not to put a Canadian band in that spot. Um, yeah, I don't agree with that. Uh, but, you know, I was that's talking okay. to Eric, I was talking to Elk. <laughs> You're wrong, like but that's okay. <laughs> it's like my daughter said, you don't have to like me or agree with me. Um, uh, not to her personally, but oh. other people we were chatting with. Uh, I think Eric Elper, we were talking to him about it and there's a couple of things. Number one, logistics. Um, you can sit and draw a, a list of 25 Canadians you'd love to have. Maybe one of them is capable of doing it yep. just because they're not busy. Uh, the other thing is the fact that it draws in more than just Canadians, and this will draw more attention to the CFL, to the Grey Cup, to all of that, because it has more of an international flair to it, no? Uh, and again, I, as I've said three times now, I am conflicted about this because I, I agree with a lot of what you just said. I just don't think that Canadian bands, even if there are not a ton of them out there that could fit the bill have many opportunities for something like this. And I, I think we should use it for them. Uh, I mean, one of the greatest halftime shows ever, Shania Twain in Ottawa a few years back when she came in on the dog sled in the snow yeah, and, yeah, yeah. you know, and there are plenty of Canadian groups out there. I mean, look, I, I would just have Rush do it every, every year, but that I was going to say other now. than, other than Rush, who would it be Scott? Well, so who I mean, are some of your favorites you'd like to, uh, the, the Arkells did it last time. Um, yeah. you know, I think was it you and I talked or, or Bubba and I were talking about that, you know, one of the ideas that they've done a number of times is like a combination of a number of different bands yeah. that sort of go together. You bring them in together. Well, the Arkells brought in the Luminaires. Yeah. 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 So the, the, there are different options and. And you know what, you're, you're catching me. I hadn't sat here and said, oh, who should it be? Because I heard who it was already, but I just, you know, it, it just, to me, it's the most Canadian annual event that we have. And so that, that's, that's why I stand there, but I'm not, I'm not taking a shot at them for the, for Green Day. It's not like they brought in Drake. Although, although <laughs> as much as I don't like Drake. Drake, imagine Drake would have the weekend, Drake, either of those guys, if you yeah, want to start yeah, somewhere, yeah, yeah, um, yeah, yeah. you know, and you say that, well, it would bring in other people. Well, there, there, there are two, two folks. See, you know what? There you go, Scott. So there's a great example of why it doesn't have to be a Canadian star. Cause you've just given two great examples of Canadian stars who are truly international. So. But would that not then they, solve the problem they, that you just as described? Canadian, as Canadians, do you think they feel, you know what? I'm going to take a bazillion dollar cut and pay so I can play the 12 minute uh, Grey Cup halftime show because I'm sure if they wanted to, that they would make it happen. Mm, do so. You think that they would do it for the Super Bowl because the weekend already did. And I don't believe, if I'm correct, I don't believe you get paid to do the Super Bowl halftime. I don't think you get paid anything. I'm not sure if you, I'm, I In have fact, no idea. I think you pay out. I think, um, Dr. Dre, if I remember right, remember in LA two or three years ago, they had all the, the old school rap guys. They had Eminem and Dr. Dre and Snoop and 50 Cent. I think Dr. Dre, if I remember right, paid $7 million to put that show on out of his own pocket. So, you know, I, I think there's usually big sponsors for the half. Oh, I think and, they're going to the do fine. I don't think he's eating any craft dinner these days. I mean, he's making the money on the residuals, but it's Drake or no one, man. Well, I, I didn't, I don't, don't tell, don't tell people that Radley said it had to be Drake. That's the opposite of what I would say, but it was an example of someone who the kids might like your, your daughter, I'm sure would love to have Drake there.
All right, we'll leave it at that. It is uh, five fifty-seven. Uh, that was non-committal on the daughter Scott, thing. I, I know. I was. I'm not going anywhere with that. You know, she did tell me she did see Justin Bieber and was very disappointed that it was such a, a drawn-out, slow kind of mundane show. How about but, you get five? But great, Drake or the Weekend, she'd be there with bells on. Five great Canadian artists each come and do their version of a Gordon Lightfoot hit for the half. They already show. did that. It was called the Canadian Walk of Fame. We'll do it again. The bigger crowd this time. <laughs> All right. Uh, coming up, Scott Radley. You can read him in your Hamilton Spectator. Thank you, Scott. Have a great night. See ya. Thanks for listening to the Hamilton Today podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday afternoons from 3 to 6 on 900 CHML and online at 900CHML.com. As always, we leave it to you, the taxpaying customer, to have the last word. This one from Mr. Lowe, retired history teacher. As a former McMaster grad, 1984, it is time for McMaster to bring the homecoming event back on campus. With its large campus students, faculty, the governing elected council need to start planning for 2024 now. Our homecomings were always on campus. Westdale citizens have had enough. Mr. Lowe, 1984 honors history geography keep right except to pass 